Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. Well, good morning again. For those that weren't here earlier, um, my name is Bruce Struksma. I'm the senior pastor here at Watertown Evangelical Free Church, we are excited you are here this morning. If you are new and visiting, uh, if this is your first time, I'd love to get to know you, meet you. Uh, We have a welcome station in the back. We have a gift for you. Um, We'd love to help you figure out how to get connected. If if you've been visiting for a while and want to know what to do to take that next step, that's another great place to go. And we've been going through the book of Hebrews, and this morning uh, we're going to continue that. We'll be in um, Hebrews 9 and 10. And so I would encourage you to turn there in your Bible or on your mobile device. Uh, we're going we're gonna to be kind of going through that. We're picking up the pace. We're moving a little faster. So this morning we're not going to read the entire chapters 9 and 10. Um, some of you are grateful for that. And, uh, we're, but I would encourage you to read it on your own. If you get a copy of the discussion guide in the back, there's a reading schedule. Uh, you, can, you can keep pace with us that way. Um, but this morning, I want to talk a little bit about replicas. Not replicants, that's a different thing, but replicas, copies. Because uh, I think sometimes we get in trouble, right? And, and sometimes we think that a copy is a bad thing, right? But sometimes a copy is a good thing. And I did not bring my lunch up here this morning. Um, I brought something else because, because sometimes a copy is a good thing. And, and before I take this out, I want to assure everyone this is, this is safe. This is a copy. This is not the real thing. Um, but this was my grandpa's. My grandfather served in uh, the U.S. Army after World War II during the Korean conflict in Germany as occupation forces. And this was, this was his from that time. So... It's a grenade, a copy of a grenade, um, but this was his. This was um, the kind of grenade, and, and again, it's empty. There's nothing, nothing to be concerned about, but uh, this was a grenade that you'd put on the end of your gun, and then you'd fire the gun, and that would shoot the grenade, which seems like a bad idea to me. I'm, <laughs> it just does. But anyway, you'd put it on the end of your gun, and you'd shoot it, and that would launch it farther than you could throw it. But this was his to practice with. So he would put it on the end of his gun and practice to figure out how far he could shoot it. Uh, if you want to come see it after the service, you are certainly welcome to. But, but in some cases, we want a replica, right? When you're practicing with a grenade, uh, you want the replica, not the real thing. You, you know, let's, let's not add danger. Other times, replicas, copies, we'll see if that works. There we go. Get us in trouble. I've had the opportunity three times to travel to Asia, twice to China, once to Mongolia. And on my first trip to China, uh, I went when I was, uh, had just graduated from high school. I was uh, a high school senior. It was the summer between my senior year and my freshman year of college. And, and we, went, we went to China, and we had the opportunity to do some shopping. And uh, I went through a, a street market, and I was a big fan of hiking and backpacking and the Boundary Waters. Uh, at that time, and here was a guy selling North Face. North Face backpacks. I thought, oh, this is, these are so cheap. This is great. I can't afford a real North Face backpack, uh, but I can afford one of these. And so I thought I was getting a discount on North Face gear. I got back to the U.S. and showed it to my friend who worked at a uh, backpacking store, and he goes, Bruce, that's, that's not a North Face. That, that's a copy. That's a counterfeit. 
And so we can see copies can be a good thing, copies can be a bad thing. And sometimes, though, we, we, we actually get it backwards and we mistake the real thing for the copy. So we, we see these things, we see these counterfeits, we see these helpful copies, and sometimes we think they're so good, we think the copy is the real thing, and sometimes we are so untrusting, we think the copy, or the real thing is a copy. And so if you are at all familiar with professional skateboarding, which I can tell in this group, there's a lot of you, um, you know who Tony Hawk is. Tony Hawk is one of the first professional skateboarders, kind of the first celebrity skateboarder. And if you follow him on social media, a thing that seems to happen to Tony Hawk more than any other celebrity is he gets confused for not being a celebrity. You know, you see these celebrities and they get so bummed about the paparazzi and the publicity. And Tony Hawk's problem is almost the opposite. And, and he has some really funny exchanges that he's posted on his Twitter feed. And I'm just going to read a couple of them. Uh, these are in his words. So, at a drive through waiting on my order, looking at my phone, guy at the window turns to me and says, you kind of look like Tony Hawk. Me, haha, cool. Him, looking disappointed. Well, from the side you do anyway, here's your food. <laughs> or a guy at a restaurant, are you famous? Me, I think that depends on who you ask. Him, anyone ever tell you you look like Tom Brady? TSA agent, looking at my ID. Hawk, like the skateboarder. Tony Hawk, me, exactly, him. I wonder what he's up to these days. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine, here you have this opportunity, you meet somebody who you know, has gone to the Olympics and won the gold medal and is world famous for his skills in skateboarding and you meet him and you go, you look like Tom Brady. I mean, you don't go home and tell somebody, you ran into somebody who looked like a celebrity Right? Ah, oh, I saw this guy look just like a celebrity. Wasn't him. Right? But if he, he, they had the opportunity to get a picture with Tony Hawk, to get his signature, to, to tell people, and they missed it because they accused the real thing of being the replica, of being the copy. You look like Tom Brady. Anyone ever tell you that? You look like somebody famous. Missed opportunity. And our author in Hebrews, I'm going through all this because our author in Hebrews is going to be talking this morning about confusing the replica for the real thing. How we can miss the real thing in front of us because we think it's the replica. And we prioritize the copy over the real deal. And so this morning, as we look at Hebrews 9 and 10, um, we're gonna look at how they viewed the temple and how they saw the temple, and they, I mean, the people that our author is writing to. Right? And, and really, he's going to point to all of Israel's history and show that they fell for the same thing all the way through. But he's going to say, hey, you're confusing the temple for the real thing. The temple isn't the real thing. The temple is the copy. The temple is the replica. The temple is the stand-in. It's not the real deal. The temple system was the replica, the shadow. And they were seeing Jesus and they were going, hey, you kind of look like that temple thing. Any, any relation? And missing the significance of having the real thing in front of them. Because they're confusing it for the temple. And so we're going to start in, in Hebrews 9 uh, before we get into it and kind of see how he's unpacking, our author's unpacking this. That the big difference is that Jesus Christ brings us closer to God where the temple existed exclusively to keep God separate from the people. 
And that's the biggest difference there, is that they were looking at the temple and they were seeing the system that was set up in place in such a way to keep them safely distanced from God. And now Jesus exists to bring us right into that presence. All along, that was God's intent. The temple was the copy. And they're like, this Jesus guy kind of reminds me of this temple thing. I wonder if, wonder if there's any connection. And they're getting it backwards. Jesus was the model. The temple is the copy. And so as we dig in, we're going to start in Hebrews 9 with the first seven verses. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. And tabernacle, uh, the idea is community is tied in with it, that God would tabernacle with us, that God would exist with us. Emmanuel, God with us. That's the idea of tabernacle, that it's more than just a place of worship. It, ha- it carries with it this idea of community and relationship and being together, and that's significant. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread, and this was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the golden jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. And our, our author has mentioned this day of atonement and this temple system already. Uh, and so he, they don't want to go into a whole lot of detail. They don't want to unpack the whole system because again, that's not, that's not the focus. But they do show that it was laid out sequentially in such a way that, that there was this outer courtyard where anybody could be. And then there was this uh, a holy place where only the priests could go when they were serving. And then there was this most holy place where the presence of God dwelled that they could only go into one a year, one time a year. And he's, he's showing that there was this intentional separation, that, that, that God, because he was so holy, had to stay over there and we had to stay over here. There was something keeping us separated. And the reminder for us is that our sin does that. That's because of sin. We are separated. We are kept at distance. It's not that God has moved, it's that we have moved. Our sin has separated us from God. Sin separates us from God, and the layout of the temple signified that. This was not God's plan. This was not God's plan for redemption. We're going to talk about redemption this morning, and redemption is this idea that we need somebody, biblically speaking, redemption, outside of us to pay the penalty for our sin. I can't do it for myself, much less anybody else. I don't qualify. So redemption is this idea that that something has to come from outside of us and pay that penalty. And, And the temple had a system to do that, but it was the copy. It was never God's intended way to do it. And, and so sin separated us from God and something needed to bridge that gap and bring it back to the way God had intended it. And that's what redemption is about. We deserve death and we need someone to pay that penalty for us. So this morning, as we talk about God's redemption, I want to share some reminders that can help us remember what redemption is all about and what it isn't. And redemption, number one, is about the heart. 
and not about the activity. And I think we get this backwards in the same way that the audience that the author of Hebrews is writing to got it backwards. We think it's about the action. We think it's about the activity. We think it's about the behavior. I mean, how many people have you heard that they go, I can't go to church, I'm not good enough. I don't behave the way that we should. Or where have we said that to other people? Where have we thought that somehow by getting um, a family member or a child or a friend to behave in a certain way, they will become more like Jesus? And, And it's backwards. It's about the heart first, not about the activity first. Right? Now, good activity matters, but, but it's about the heart. Redemption is about redeeming our heart, not just about redeeming behaviors. And how we need to remind ourselves of this fact. We need it constantly. And for the Israelites, the reminder was supposed to be the, the regular recurring sacrifice, that they had to go in daily and offer these sacrifices, that they had to splash blood against the altar daily was supposed to be a reminder that I have separated myself from God and I need to redeem my heart to redeem my action. But how many times was blood splashed against the altar and nothing changed? And how often are we the same, where we know that something we're doing is wrong and we keep doing the same thing because we've never dealt with the heart issue? And Paul talks about this when he says, that which I know I shouldn't do, I do, and that which I know I should do, I don't. I mean, so it's not, an, it's not a thing that is unique to any of us. That we sit there and we, we wish that our actions were better. And maybe we haven't dealt with the heart. Because redemption starts with the heart. It's about the heart, not the activity. In verses 8 through 10, we read in chapter 9, The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. And so what the author is getting at is this idea that, you know, as long as we keep thinking that these actions are doing it, we're keeping the old system in place. We need to replace that old system. As long as we keep thinking that it's just about behavior modification, we continue to keep that old covenant in place. A better translation of verse eight would say, the Holy Spirit shows us by this means that the way into the real tent had not yet been opened as long as the old tent remains in use. As long as we continue to operate under the old system, that if I change my behavior enough, God will love me more. As long as we continue to operate under that system, we continue to keep that system in place. And the author is challenging us to set that down. It's not about behavior modification. I, I, when I hear this, I think of Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes and how every Christmas, he would, he would seek behavior modification so that he would get presents from Santa. And so you see him here in the third panel. This is another spontaneous act of goodwill, Santa. You'd better come through in spades for me. Because for Calvin, it's about behavior modification. He doesn't want to change his heart. He doesn't want to become a person who is kind to his mother and appreciates her cooking. He wants to change his behavior so that he gets what he wants. And how often do the people of Israel and do we see redemption the same way that it's about behavior modification, that if we can get more people 
to follow Jesus will have more and better actions. And that should be true, but it needs to start with the heart, not with changing the action. And our author is building up here. The ritual is not enough. We cannot do it on our own. And we all know this trap. We fall for it constantly. How many times have we seen a kid uh, when they do something wrong and we make them apologize and we get the apology that's not an apology? And we see the same thing in politicians where you get the apology that is not an apology. I'm sorry you felt that way. We all know that's not an apology. And yet we do the same thing. How many times have I hurt or wronged somebody and my motivation to go and make things right has nothing to do with the fact that I hurt and wronged them. It's that because of my being caught hurting and wronging them, I now need to apologize. Otherwise there's consequences for me. And we get it backwards. We're doing behavior modification instead of dealing with the heart. But Israel did this and we do the same thing and we see it throughout the Old Testament and that's what our author is building up on. This idea that we seek behavior modification. We read Jeremiah 7 a few weeks ago where it talks about them uh, coming into the temple and offering the sacrifices and saying, there, I'm safe. I went to church. And how many of us do the same thing? Or Hosea 6.6 where God says to the people, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So let me ask, where have we gotten it backwards? Where have we sought in our own life or in the lives of others behavior modification instead of letting God redeem the heart and letting the behavior follow? Where are we, where are spots where we as a church know that God has called us to love our neighbor and our communities and we do it begrudgingly because we know that's what we're supposed to do, but we don't deal with the heart issue of why. Which leads to our second reminder that redemption on our own is not possible. Why is it not just about behavior modification? Because it's not possible. I cannot be perfect. I've already failed, I've already sinned, I'm already broken, I can't do enough to fix that. Behavior modification, redemption on my own is not possible. And this is a long section, and so I'm not gonna make us read the entire thing, but the author continues this thread, unpacking this idea that we cannot do it on our own. And, and, and the author is gonna unpack this idea that there's a real temple in heaven, and that the temple and the tabernacle that the people of Israel were seeing was the copy. And, and, and going to build this argument that if a human priest can't enter the copy without offering the sacrifice of an animal, how much more the real temple cannot be entered by somebody who's unworthy. And that's kind of the gist of the argument that they're building to. Uh, and, but what is interesting is in verses 16 and 17, we have this dialogue about a will or a testament. And and we all know what a will is. We all know what a, you know, when somebody dies, we, you know, and you've seen the movies. Maybe you haven't been to a real one, but you've seen the movies where they open the will and, you know, and it's to my great grandson that nobody knew existed. I leave everything because he actually cared about me, right? And, and we, we understand what that is and, and we get that picture here. But in a little bit, we get it not quite correct because we're seeing it with a 21st century understanding of what a will or a testament is. 
And a closer parallel in today's day and age to what they're talking about here is the idea of a writ of habeas corpus, which is another legal term which means show me the body. In the idea that for a criminal trial to proceed, there has to be evidence. And that's kind of more the idea we're getting here is that for it to proceed, for something, there has to be a sacrifice, there has to be a body. Both the old covenant and the new covenant require the deaths of either animals or Jesus Christ, not us. That's the key here, not us. We cannot do it. The symbol used the the sacrifice, the blood of heifers and goats. The real deal uses the blood of Christ. Neither one is our blood. Our blood doesn't do it. It doesn't count. It doesn't qualify. Okay, and so he's arguing that for there to be a sacrifice, there requires a death. We need the evidence of a death. And whether that's through Christ or through the blood of heifers and goats in the replica, it's not us is the important thing. And so starting, we're going to pick it up in verse 22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And it did. When you read in like, Numbers and Exodus, when they're setting up the temple, they're spreading blood everywhere to cleanse things. They're sprinkling it on this and they're sprinkling it on that and the the priest would have to put some on people's earlobes and put it on goats and put it on, because everything needed to be cleansed with this. Everything be cleansed with blood and and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Meaning, if, like I said, if you're gonna enter the model with the blood of goats, you can't enter the real thing with a subpar sacrifice. You needed something better to go into the better example, the real deal. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. There is no close enough, right? The copy is a copy. It's not close enough. We need the real thing. We need the real thing. We need Jesus Christ. And the author throughout this book has gone to great lengths to show why Jesus qualifies. And we've hit on some of them, but I want to recap because I think it's so important. A priest, as in the only priest. The priest that we see in the temple sacrificial system is the copy of Jesus, not the other way around. We need Jesus. He's the only priest who qualifies on merit. All the rest were taken from the people. They were not adequate. They needed a sacrifice to make them adequate, and they needed it again and again and again and again. Jesus is the only priest that qualifies, not on lineage, but on merit. He is pure, holy, and in a class by himself, as we talk about. The tabernacle, he enters the real one, the one on earth, the temple and the tabernacle, as glorious as it was, was a copy of the real thing in heaven. And again, tabernacle being tied with community, being tied with presence is more about face-to-face with God than it is about a a physical space. So the the face-to-face with God space in the tabernacle and temple was a replica of what it should look like for us to live in community with God. Jesus is in community with God, the real tabernacle, the actual relational presence. And the blood sacrifice once and for all, not repeated, day after day, year after year, not with animals, once and for all. 
And so the connection to the original day of atonement is clear, the connection to the priest, the tabernacle, the temple. But again, hear this. All of those things point to Jesus, not the other way around. Those things weren't built to point to Jesus, they were based on Jesus. And we get it backwards. And I hear people all the time talking about all these Old Testament traditions and going, isn't it cool how they, how they point to Jesus? And they do, and yes, that's cool, but remember that they were pointing to Jesus before Jesus came to earth. They were originally pointing to the, to the original. I mean, think of it like with a, with a copy machine, right? And you photocopy something multiple times. And let's say that at one point you get a fold in that photocopy. Now all the copies have that fold in them. And how do you fix that? By going back to the original. And the original is Jesus. And the photocopy in the tabernacle, in the temple, got abused and and misunderstood so many times that where it references Jesus is great, but it also brings with it these folds and wrinkles and imperfections. And they were based on Jesus. So instead of looking at the copy, let's look at the original. Let's go back to the source. Because we have replaced oftentimes the replica with the real deal. And so for us, the challenge is the same. We want to replace at some level the sacrificial system with this idea that I can do it on my own. And our author is clear, we can't do it on our own. We can't be good enough. We can't be right enough. We can't be correct enough to cover our sin. And we need somebody outside of us to do it. It's not possible on our own. And so now we see that not only is it not possible on our own, but number three, redemption is a one-time action of Christ alone. So the University of Chicago Law School published an article, and in it, it gave this example. A child care facility, this is a true story, by the way, a child care facility was having a problem with parents coming late. If the parents are late, the child care workers have to provide somebody to stay late And so in an effort to reduce the number of parents who came late to get their kids, they imposed a fine, right? That makes sense. People are coming late to get their kids. We're paying somebody to stay late. We're going to pass that fine on to you. We're going to penalize you to hopefully get you to come here on time. The interesting thing was that the number of parents who came to get their kids late increased with the imposition of a fine. More people started coming late when they started imposing a fine. Why? That was the question the journal article was asking. They did some investigating. The, con- the conclusion they drew is that in this institution, in this scenario, many saw the fine not as a penalty for bad behavior, but as a fee to pay for services rendered. Oh, I can pay the fine and stay late. This is great. I will stay at work late, getting overtime, thus getting more money, and I will pass some of that money on to you as a thank you for watching my kids. This is great. There's a, there's a, there's a fee now for staying late. So that didn't work. It was easy for the Israelites to fall into the same trap. It's easy for us to fall into the same trap, right? They saw the sacrificial system as a transactional relationship. Oh, great. I now know what the penalty is. If I commit a sin, I sacrifice the goat. Well, now that I know the fee, I have lots of goats. Let's let's go. 
But there was another dynamic at the childcare facility that the journal article cited that was interesting. After they removed the fine, so the fine didn't work, so they removed the fine. After they removed the fine, the number of people showing up late stayed the same. So it increased when they put in the fine, it did not decrease when they removed the fine, why? Because the people who, saw, who now saw it as, I'm getting a better deal. I'm now getting a better deal. You must love my kids so much. The sheer joy of staying late with my children, my wonderful, perfect children, must be so great that you're now looking at me going, I don't even need the extra money from you. We're just getting a better deal. And I think sometimes we as Christians look at God the same way. We go, well, if I don't need to offer a regular sacrifice because Jesus paid the once and for all price, I just got a better deal. I don't longer have this fine. Sweet. It's a better deal for me. And our author does not want us to fall into this trap. And Paul, the apostle Paul has the same argument. We do not have this unlimited source of grace that we can go on sinning and doing whatever we want. It's not a better deal. You know, there are people who see it as a get out of jail free card that if I have a get out of jail free card, I might as well make it worth it. You know, if I'm gonna go to jail for something and get out for free, I might as well commit a crime that's worth getting out of jail for. And I think we start to see God's redemption as this once and for all, as this thing that is just a better deal than the old system. Free grace does not mean a free pass. We must leave the transactional view of atonement behind. In chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, our author says this. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. And he's quoting Psalm 40, which is a psalm that was written by David and is viewed by many as being messianic, as referencing the Savior that was going to come, that was referencing Jesus. Though they were offered in accordance with the law, you didn't want them. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second. Meaning, like we've already said, you have to set aside the transactional view and replace it with the correct one. It was never about offerings. It was always about the heart. And we have to set aside the same thing too. Why did God have a sacrificial system if he did not desire sacrifices or if he wasn't pleased with them? What our author is getting at and the lesson we are taking from this passage this morning is that it was never intended to be the route we took to God. The transactional route was never the route intended. Our author is challenging us to see in the Old Testament the shadow of Christ. God's original intent to cover for sin was not the ongoing sacrifice of animals. It was the one and only one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's not that we got a better deal, it's that the real deal showed up. And C.S. Lewis talks in his book, The Weight of Glory, which is a collection of sermons. And so in the sermon, The Weight of Glory, he talks about this idea of of learning uh, for the sake of learning. That our goal for our kids, the goal for ourselves, is that we get to the point where we want to learn something because we know the benefit outcome. Right? If, and he used the example of Greek poetry, which I know is not a common thing in our society today, but for him it was. like He wanted to learn Greek, the Greek language so that he could read those ancient Greek poems like the Odyssey in the original language and understand it and comprehend it. And he goes, I want my kids to have the same thing, and, and if I want them to have the same thing, I want them to do it because the same reason, that they want to do it. 
I want them to get to the point where they just value it. Problem is when you start a person on a learning schedule, whether it's yourself or somebody else, you have to start with a transactional view. That's why we have a grade system in school. Would we like kids to be motivated in school beyond grades? Absolutely. Why do we have grades? Because they need and we need the same thing. We need that transactional view sometimes to get us moving. We do the same thing if we talk about exercise and dieting. All right, if I can go every week for a bike ride and put on 30 miles, then I'll get that new thing I want. I'll, then I'll be able to have birthday cake. Then I'll, whatever it is. We start with this transactional view. But eventually, take exercise, take learning, take anything you want, you get far enough down the path, you start to do it because you value the benefit it brings. Pretty soon, you wanna go for the bike ride or the walk or whatever, not because you're gonna get that reward you've set for yourself, because you know how much it benefits you. And I think our author is trying to get us to have the same view of atonement from God. That, that yes, we need to see this this behavior modification, these changes, this pursuing of God, we maybe need to start with the transactional way like he did with the people of Israel, but we need to move beyond that, right? We need to move beyond the transactional view. We need to stop seeing it that way. And, and while there were people who saw it that way in the Old Testament system, the goal was to move beyond that. We should be pursuing Christ not because it gets us out of sin, only, but because we value the relationship connection, we value the community, the, the face-to-faceness access that we have with God. It was never just about the sin. It was about correcting what was broken. And our passage goes on, starting in verse 10. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, meaning Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And notice the posture. Jesus is seated. He's done. Before, they had to do it again and again and again, and now he's done. Once and for all, he is seated. So our call is not to make ourselves more holy. We cannot. It's completed in Jesus Christ, and he's done. So where there's two traps we can fall into, there's two ditches on both sides. There's the ditch where on one side we fall for the trap that we think we can work our way closer to God by doing more and more. And where do we need to confess that and say, God, I've been doing these behavior modification things thinking they make me a better follower of you and I've never dealt with the heart. And on the other side, we see it as the get out of jail free card where we go, since it doesn't matter, then I can do whatever I want. And, and both are ditches that we can fall into. And so where are we not treating Jesus' sacrifice for our sins as it should be? As this incredible gift that we need entirely. And therefore, we can't do it on our own. We've got to stop working at it on our own. And yet, on the other hand, we need to treat that gift as the thing it is, worthy and valuable and not something to be taken for granted. 
And verse 18, if we fall for the trap thinking that Christ's work for us was not enough, hear this. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Where Jesus has forgiven you, you are forgiven. And no amount of behavior modification is needed. But lest we think that therefore we don't have to change, remember finally that redemption should be a call to action. Knowing that we stand pure and holy before God should be a call to action. Once the heart is transformed, the action needs to follow. We should not cheapen grace. We must keep in our minds the sacrifice of our Savior as a reminder of his love for us. And that is part of the reason that at this church we do communion at least once a month to remind us of that sacrifice. Where we have experienced his love and grace, we need to overflow into the world around us. We must take the gospel of redemption and reconciliation out of our own lives and let it spill out onto those around us. And so we'll end this morning with verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. And so look at the calls to action in that passage. Verse 22, let us draw near. Where are we drawing near to God? Where are we continuing as redeemed people to look at God and say, I want to draw near to you. I want to have the face-to-face relationship with you that I have access to. Where are we drawing near? And let us hold unswervingly. To hold unswervingly is not blind adherence, right? But as we draw near, then we begin to learn more about who God is and we can hold more confidently to who he is. So that when the world around doesn't align with what we understand about God, we hold on to Christ and we aren't wavered. We aren't waffling. And let us spur one another. And that's not just a call to Sunday mornings. That passage got used a lot to talk about how you should come to church. And you should come to church regularly, but that spurring one another on is tied more deeply to that tabernacle presence idea. Where are you meeting with people regularly, encouraging them in their walk to be in the face-to-face presence of the king? Where are we redeeming that relationship with God, that access to God? And let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So as we end this morning in worship, push into God's presence. Draw near to him. Spur one another on and hold unswervingly to his truth. Would you please pray with me? Lord, we do. We owe all to you. God, we can't do it on our own. Lord, we need your once and for all sacrifice for our sins. So God, we thank you for that. And Lord, we worship you this morning. And so God, help us to take that with us as we leave. God, let that grace and that mercy spill out of us into our friends, our neighbors, our classmates and coworkers.
We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. A couple of things real quick uh, before you leave. One is uh, you should have gotten an email. Uh, today is the last day to sign up for the March Madness bracket. Um, they are doing Selection Sunday. We have like 14 of us. would love to have a few more. Um, also coming up is the game feed. We'd love to have that on your calendar. That is a great spot to invite some people who don't know the Lord to come and hear a gospel message. Uh, I'd encourage you to put that on your calendar. And finally, Easter flowers. You should have gotten an email. There's a link there. I think there's also a sign up in the back um, for Easter flowers. And as we end this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.